There's our period of metta instruction, which is going to be a little different today. Not quite instruction, but eventually we'll get there to metta. I am um, really, really glad to be here um, at this time in my life and in the life of um, what's going on in the country. I, um, I really needed to come to a metta retreat because um, I've been in my life really working on metta a lot, particularly with um, sending a lot of metta to Washington, D.C. to, uh, as Jack said, Uncle Cheney and Aunt Condoleezza not to be confused with condemnation. And um, I was really like Sylvia, really involved also in, you know, letter writing, lots of things that, um, and I had the blues. So it's been really good for me to, to come to be with this Sangha and this particular one, this diversity Sangha. So, there's been a lot of, I mean, the news is just filled with all the bad stuff, all the bad stuff. And I am keenly aware of all of that and possible implications. But at the same time, there's such a growing movement, I think, in this country, uh, in the world of spirituality, both meditation and yoga and all sorts of, especially in Los Angeles, I don't know, maybe I'm in a place that's unrealistic. Well, I know I'm in a place that's unrealistic. <laughs> that's actually why I live there. I've chosen to be in a place that's unrealistic. I don't know that I could deal with reality. But certainly, there's just a plethora of yoga centers everywhere. And you can't go into a gym without, you know, many, many yoga classes. And there's so much yoga and different types of yoga. And it's, there's a big question now as to, in the yoga community specifically, if it's really spirituality, because there's so much yoga that's just, you know, there's, um, it's funny, I um, read this magazine that came out in the LA Times, the, the magazine on Sunday that comes out, and the cover story was about yoga and how prevalent it is in LA and how spirituality is nowhere in sight. And it actually talked about a yoga center that I've not seen yet, that their slogan is, we burn fat, not incense. <laughs> so it's really gotten to be, I mean, there's yoga for a lot of reasons. And the question is, <laughs> the question is, is that spirituality or, or not? And my take on it is that, yeah, you know, you're going to get something. You're going to walk in there and you're going to get something that, that resonates, that leads you even perhaps to something a little bit deeper. But I'm happy for 
those centers. And uh, there's this other one that, the same one, sorry, that they actually have a class. You know how you have different classes, intermediate and beginning. They have yoga for a better butt. <laughs> and they're really working on that area of the body specifically. And people are really questioning the spirituality. For me, I think that there is, I look at that and I think, you know, that's suffering, right? People are suffering on all kinds of levels. People are suffering with image. People are suffering from all kinds of levels. And I believe that spiritual, spiritual practices are addressing those, that suffering on different levels. And I'm personally happy for all of it. Because it seems like I was looking at the question, like what that begged the question of why do we come to spiritual practices? I mean, what draws us? And with all the many answers that there are, they seem to boil down to two in my, in my mind. And that is that either something you feel needs fixing, there's something wrong and something needs fixing. Um, and I think that that may be the prevalent one. You come up against something in life, many instances, experiences, relationship, whether it's you know kids or parents or whatever it might be. You come up to experiences where you find that you recognize something in you that you feel deeply needs fixing. And so in the quest, you may show up in a yoga class or in a meditation hall. And I think that we all have that. And that that's a lot why we come into spiritual practice. And I think another reason is that there's just this deep calling for a sacred space. And, or a combination of the two, a combination of the two. I, um, I was looking at my own story, and I want to kind of share with you my story of how I got to, to the spiritual practices that, that are in my life. So I grew up in um, Southern California. I, live out, I lived outside of LA, a smaller town. And as a kid, I mean, I, I was just one of these really fortunate, this life was really fortunate with my family. Grew up in a great family, great family. Um, brother, sister, mother, father. And I was the kind of kid that was just always happy and full of, you know, I loved every little sound and everything. I woke up happy and I went to bed happy and I just had that kind of spirit and it was, um, it was really fun. My life, I, when I look back, I look at it as being really good and exciting. Everything was exciting. I grew up in the Baptist church, loved it, loved it. Sang in the choir, loved it. The music was phenomenal. It wasn't, I didn't have that religious experience of, you know, get away. It was, it was a big part of cultivating who I am today. And uh, I look back on those times with a lot of, a lot of love. And um, so 
you know, I grew up and, you know, then <clears throat> I lived in this neighborhood that until I was 12 years old in the same place in San Bernardino. And then at 12, my parents, we moved, to, which seemed like miles and miles away. It was only two miles away, but it was very different. And it wasn't until we moved that I realized I had lived in an all-black and Hispanic neighborhood. I didn't even recognize, I didn't know that. And then we moved to the suburbs. And there were two black families in the entire town. So it was a radical change for me. And also, when I was in school back in the hood, which I didn't realize was at the time, um, school for me was something that I just loved. I've always been enjoyed it and, you know, did well in it <clears throat> and, um, you know, achieved. So by the time I got in, when we moved to this suburb, um, I was put into the lowest, dumbest class in reading and in math, which is not, I didn't know that. That was not my life. Um, in addition to that, there was just a lot that my family and myself endured during that period of time. It was really hard. I was 12. And that was 1966. So it was not, it was not an easy road, but you know, we stuck it out in my family and, um, and, you know, it all turned out to be wonderful. My life is good. But it was a very, very difficult time. And what happened to me is that my heart, that open, wide-eyed child that was just so full of light and love, my heart started to close down during that period of time. You know, my heart started to close and it got smaller and smaller. And it had to shut down based on what was coming, what was coming at me. So I went through junior high and high school and, you know, made lots of friends, but still there was just this tension, you know, maybe four black families came in, a couple of Hispanic families, but it was still a predominantly white community that was very painful. And um, so I got through high school and left and came up here and went to Berkeley. So by the time I got to Berkeley, you know, then you get into college and you learn about all the isms, you know, you learn about sexism and all of it and just the whole world is just a mess. It was, you know, the Vietnam War, everything was a mess and my heart had closed down to this point and anger had developed and Berkeley was a really incredible education for me. But what happened that, that um, changed things, because I, I was ripe for a change, is I had met someone, this beautiful black man, who um, had just moved out in an ashram. I had never, didn't know what that was. He was a different sort. And um, <laughs> kind of Jimi Hendrix looking kind of guy with the head wrap, you know what I mean? Beautiful, fine. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he took me to my first yoga class. 
And it was a class, it was a kundalini yoga class. So, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with kundalini, but they're the Sikhs. And that's when they had, they used to wear those swords, remember? I don't know if, I don't think they have those anymore. But um, I went to my first kundalini in Berkeley on Channing Way. And I was there every morning, 6 a.m. I loved it. My first class, it was, it resonated immediately. And this brother was like the kind of guy who I felt was in some idealistic world when the world out here is just hard and rough and awful. And he was like in this idealistic world and peace and love. And it was a very interesting relationship um, in terms of us teaching and feeding each other. But from that and from the kundalini and from the yoga and I experienced again, like laying in savasana at the end of the class, the openness, you know how it is, the, the beauty of my heart, it started to open again. And I realized that I had really been shut down, really shut. And so the kundalini, the yoga just brought so much to my world at the time. And I, I, I was thirsty for it and I remembered myself. It was like, I remember myself. I totally remembered. I had forgotten. So the question was, how do you keep your heart open in a world that is so messed up? Because that shut, my, that shut me down. How do you keep your heart open? It's not easy. And it was through the yoga. And the yoga led to meditation. And one thing led to the other. And here it is today. But the core of it, the core of what opened up for me, laying there in savasana, was the compassion that I've always had, that I used to have, that had closed down compassion really opened up for me. Compassion for myself, for my life, compassion for others, for people who that ignorance had led them to do awful things. And that was really the key that began to have me explore spiritual practices, the compassion. And society gives us many, many ways to to not look at suffering. I mean, I had this wonderful, I heard this wonderful quote of, of a definition of compassion is, compassion is the quivering of the heart in connection to suffering. The quivering of the heart in connection to suffering. And we live in a world that it is so easy to just avoid it, to avoid suffering. You know, I live in Los Angeles. We're in a car. I get in my bubble car. I do have a Prius, though. I'm doing it right. <laughs> but I get in my bubble car, and you drive to some place, and you avoid people. And you, your goal in LA is to get a house that has a fence so you could block everything out, live up on the hill somewhere, separate, separate. There's Lots of ways to avoid suffering if you want to. But when I got into 
than the Buddhist teachings. The thing that I loved the most of all of the, all of the teachings were, that really resonated to me were the, uh, the Brahma Viharas. The four, the four qualities of the mind. That really somehow when the first time I heard it, it just clicked. And it was like a prescription for me, for life. A prescription for living, a prescription for dealing, for coming back to those mind states. And they are loving kindness, number one, metta, loving kindness. Number two is compassion. Three is joy. And four is equanimity. And the way I envisioned it, I I saw it as, I'm a vegetarian, so I see things in a certain way. I saw it as this big salad, right? And you know the kind of salad that the bread is the bowl. You've had those kind of salads where everything is inside the bread. And I saw compassion as like the lettuce and the tomatoes in the salad, like the, 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 the basic part of the salad. And then joy as like the pine nuts. I love the little pine nuts that you find underneath every once in a while, the little joy, little sprinkles of pine nuts at the bottom. And equanimity was like the bowl, the bread bowl that was carrying it, the container, right? And loving kindness. Is anybody familiar with Annie's goddess dressing? (laughs) (laughs) The dressing on the top. that goes all through to the bottom, right? That was the salad bowl. And that's how I saw it, and, and, and I just want to eat of it. So I was curious more about compassion, joy, and, and loving and kindness. That all was really clear to me how that all works. Equanimity, okay, how and what is that? And how, did it, how does that fit in? And equanimity, to me, is sort of like what I would call the balance and the evenness. It's the balance and the evenness in a given situation. And having, bringing that quality to a situation. Equanimity is often related to with wisdom. Equanimity and wisdom, the wisdom, the balance. Now, balance doesn't always mean calm, because it's not always calm, because sometimes you just have to be with chaos. It's being with chaos. But I had to really understand, once I really understood equanimity, that is what really shifted and changed things for me. So, and I also found that the meta phrases, you know, may you be well, may you be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I be well, those phrases helped me cultivate equanimity. It was a very interesting question this morning on this side of the room when you asked um, Sylvia about, isn't that just asking for the best things? And I said, yeah, isn't it? And I looked at her, I couldn't wait for her answer. And it was brilliant. I learned so much. And what she said is that it's not about the circumstances out there. We're talking about the internal. May I, even in the midst of chaos, find the peace within? 
that is the pieces, that's the equanimity that the metaphrases cultivate. Does that make sense? That's what it, that's how it works for me. And there's always, this seems to be this creative tension between compassion and action, active compassion, and equanimity and wisdom. It's a creative tension. And it seems like people are either on one side or the other. You lean more to one side or the other. And I have to tell you this story about um, the first time I met Jack Cornfield. Jack was, um, this was about nine years ago or so. And Jack, in his infinite wisdom, wanted to <laughs> create these people of color retreats because he recognized the need for them. So I get a call from Jack Cornfield, right? I had only read his books, had seen him, but he, I didn't know who, he didn't know me. But suddenly my phone rings at my job and it's Jack Cornfield on the phone. And I'm thinking, the Jack Cornfield. <laughs> and, and in his way, hi, it's Jack. <laughs> and he told me about this retreat that he wanted to do and that he heard that I was a, you know, decent yoga teacher, and um, wanted to know if I wanted to join him in, at Vallecitos in New Mexico. And I said, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want to do that. And so I met, I went to this retreat. Now, on the way to the retreat, it's, um, Vallecitos is up in the mountains in New Mexico, just beautiful. And it was a people of color, activists of color retreat. Now, activists of color, silent meditation retreat. <laughs> you get the oxymoron, right? <laughs> so we get to the, I get off the plane, and suddenly there's all these colored folks in the airport waiting for the bus or whatever that's picking us up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just brilliant, beautiful people, amazing human beings. So we start talking and everybody's finding out what each other does. I mean, just incredible work in the world, these people. It was unbelievable. So, you know, we're just chatting away and getting to know each other and just falling in love. And we get from the bus to the truck that picks you up. I mean, this is way up in from the truck to practically the mule or something that takes us all the way up. We finally get to Vallecitos, and by this time, these people, we are completely in love with each other, okay? And I am so excited to be there. Now, after the first night, you know how it goes, the treat, retreats go, and then it goes into silence. And everybody was like, what silence? What are you talking about silence? <laughs> well, on the brochure, I saw it. It said silent. Nobody saw that. <laughs> so there was a little bit of resistance to the silence, to say the least. And I'm talking about people who, the more we learn the compassion, the huge, huge compassion that, the, that led these people's work. I mean, they got up every day and battling some ism somewhere in this country. And that's what they did with their lives. It was just amazing. 
So compassion wasn't the issue. So when it got to the silence, though, boy, it was hard. It was really tough. It was tough not to look at each other in the morning and say, how you doing? It was tough. But as the days went, it got more and more silent. It got more and more silent. And when it got silent, it was really interesting because you felt, and then all the teachings from Jack and, and, and Deborah, who was there, and the yoga, I think all the teachings just brought a whole other side of spiritual practice to the people who were there. And the cultivation, the beginning of the cultivation of equanimity started to seep through. So I believe that we really need to give attention to both sides, to compassion and action and equanimity and wisdom. They both need as much attention as the other. But equanimity can run the risk of complacency, okay, acceptance, privileged distance. I don't have to be concerned with what's going on. It can look like hold that container of equanimity. So those are important things to look for and to make sure and to, to really, really look at. But what I love is that equanimity doesn't allow compassion to just dwell in the abyss of feelings, you know? And compassion gives equanimity a softer touch and an open heart. And they play together in this incredible way. And it makes me, it puts me in mind of like Nelson Mandela. When Jack was mentioning him, 27 years on Robben Island, 27 years, and the man comes out gracious. What is that about? I just, I, I, I just love him. And I see him as that container, as that, that bowl, that bread bowl, holding all of it. So here we are in this group, this diverse sangha of a myriad of experiences, all of us. And I've had the opportunity to talk to some of you in the groups and really great, great dialogue questions that are very honest, that come from the heart, statements. Like, when I think of diversity, I think of anger. That is very real. When I think of diversity, I think of anger. Or if we are in a diverse retreat, let's name it. Let's call it. Let's deal with the issues. At least name it. Like Jack. Jack, in his opening, in his Dharma talk, he put those issues out. He named some things. 
Then the other question was, but aren't we just here for the same thing, for just mindfulness? What does all that matter? We're here for mindfulness practice. So this is the world that we live in. And we represent the best of the six billion. <laughs> and this is the dialogue. And this is real. This is the real dialogue of today. So it seems like in, in my life, the question is always is, is like, how do you reconcile these two parallel worlds? There are two parallel worlds. There's the, there's the relative world of the, that I call the swamp of personalities that we've created. Okay, we're all in this swamp of suffering and harm to each other. And that world that is hurting, that person that's hurting. And then there's that other world that each one of us has this, that's just absolute. It's the absolute that you know has no suffering, has never suffered. That quality that we all know that can't be hurt, that is just pure. It's that authentic self, the big S self. So there's the small S and the big S. How do you reconcile that? I don't have the answer, but I know that my life, in my life, I have suffered the oppressions of racism, of sexism, of homophobia. And still, somehow I am relatively, and I say that in quotes, relatively free. That's really who I am. I feel free. I have issues, you know, but I feel relatively free. Some of us, probably not as much as some people, maybe more than others. But I suspect that Though I don't have the answer, I do suspect that loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity all have something to do with it. I suspect that that has something to do with it. So this is a retreat. This retreat is an invitation for us all to sit together and eat of the salad, to share our salad with each other. And I'm just really grateful to be at this first meal. And I'm grateful for all of you to be here and to have chosen to come. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.